Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from AboutMeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 25 of the One Mind Podcast and thank you for joining me today. I'm super excited to share part one of a two-part interview I conducted with my good friend and longtime meditator, Ted Saad. Before we jump into the show, if you're a regular listener and haven't yet left us a rating and a review, but if you'd like to, please head on over to iTunes today. Leave us a star rating and a review. Let us know what you like about the show. I read everything you write. So back to the show. Today is the first part of my two-part interview with Ted Saad. And Ted really shares with us his nine-year journey with meditation. And I think you're going to appreciate hearing the different ways that meditation has transformed his life. At one point in the interview, Ted shares with us that he has a really crazy mind and that meditation has helped him with that. And I thought, well, um, that's got to be true for most of us. So if you're like me, you're probably going to relate to some of the things Ted talks about and some of the really fabulous benefits that he describes. You really get a sense in this interview of how the steady and deliberate practice of meditation changes us in deep and fundamentally positive ways. And also look out for part two of this interview in which Ted and I have a really a wonderful and in-depth discussion exploring the relationship between meditation and the powerful map of human development called Integral Theory. That is going to come out in episode 26, so look for that. Okay, so let's jump into this interview with Ted Saad. Ted, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Morgan. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start by just asking you a few questions about your own story. You've been meditating for a number of years. Can you share a little bit about how you got into meditation, a little bit about the kind of evolution of your practice, who you've studied with, who you're studying with now. And then after that, we're going to jump into, I want to ask you some questions about really the meat of today's interview, integral theory. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it hasn't been necessarily a, I guess, a very linear journey in regards to yeah. meditation practice. But I've been, I would say I've been seriously meditating for about nine years now. Mm-hmm. So how I got into meditation, I would probably say it started some, I'm 49 years old right now. So, so somewhere around my mid thirties, I was going through kind of a crisis of some sort, existential crisis. I was in a serious relationship with someone at the time and that came to an end. And I just was feeling uh, very alienated and sort of lost. And, and, and I just felt like there was something more to the meaning of life. And, and I started to read a lot of um, 
philosophy at that time. And I, I was reading a lot of Western philosophy, but also very interested in Eastern philosophy. And I started reading books about Buddhism and Hinduism and the Tao and a lot of other threads in, in, in that area. You know, and I came across some interesting people that were kind of finding ways to integrate that. One mm -hmm. particular author that really inspired me during that time was Ken Wilber, who was integrating a lot of the ideas from the East and the West. You know, as reading about that, I was getting a lot of these ideas conceptually, you know, this idea that reality is impermanent and uh, life is about suffering and sort of the, the nature of reality and all that. But it was all very conceptual to me. And I was very turned off by new age thinking around that time. So a lot of the people mm. that were into new age spiritual practice, it didn't turn me on. But the thing that Ken Wilber did was he kind of put a certain intellectual rigor into the idea of a lot of these spiritual practices and why we need to do them. Yeah. So I felt like there was something to this. Like, even though I thought I had it figured out, I, I kind of didn't. I just had it figured out conceptually. I said, oh, yeah, I get this, you know, these terms and what they mean. And it makes sense to me philosophically. But the reality of it is, is that what you know philosophically and what you know experientially are two different things. And I realized that I probably needed to get serious about spiritual practice and meditation. So, yeah. You know, around the time I turned 40, I started to do some retreats. I, I did like a short Vipassana retreat. I did another retreat with another teacher. You know, they were good introductions, but they didn't necessarily go deep enough for me. I think I was still very conceptual in the way I was seeing how meditation was. And then I came across doing a retreat with Daniel P. Brown. And interesting, there is a connection here because uh, Daniel P. Brown, he co-wrote a book with Ken Wilber about 25 years ago. And so I had found out through a mutual friend that he was giving a retreat at the uh, Kripalu Center out in Western Mass. Yeah. And I decided to jump in. For me, that was profound because the way he ran his retreat was really to try to take you as deep as you can to find out your true nature question ted sure. is he he's in the tibetan buddhist tradition yes i mean he's a westerner he's a he's a psych, clinical psychologist uh he teaches at harvard medical school so he has all these western credentials but also for much of his life he's been studying with tibetan buddhist teachers and he's very much embedded in the lineage particularly mahamudra and zogchen yeah zogchen gotcha right and so he he had this interesting combination of being very much Western-centric and, and being very science-based and yet at the same time held strongly to the tradition of, of his lineage and also kind of incorporating his know-how in what he learned through psychology, too, and bringing that piece into it. And he was a scholar. He was an actual scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So he's done a lot of work on one of the things that he did in transformations of consciousness was to try to actually compare these different uh, meditative states in different traditions and seeing how they line up. Hmm. Um, and he's also done a lot of translation and continues to do a lot of translation of many root texts in, in Buddhism. And so he he definitely has this strong affinity to the tradition but yet has a lot of knowledge about other practices. Also, he knows a lot about what the Desert Fathers and Christianity taught about meditation. He knows a lot about mm. the, uh, the Hindu path, Patanjali Yoga Sutras in particular. But his home has always been in the uh, Tibetan Buddhism 
Got it. Got it. Thank you. That's, that's clarifying. So yeah. So you jumped into this retreat with Dan Brown. Yeah. So I jumped in and I can't say it was an easy retreat for me. You know, I, I have a crazy mind. It's gotten better over the years. So, uh, (laughs) just to let people know that they're in that place of feeling like, geez, I can't, I can't meditate. My mind is just all over the place. Well, I hope I can be sort of an exemplar in that regard because yes, it, it, it is challenging at the beginning, but it does get easier so what I felt that first retreat did for me was, even though I, I probably didn't go as far as some other people did on that retreat in, in regards to my experience, I, I felt like it was a, there was a certain purification that I needed to go through. And then also it gave me sort of the insight to know that there, there's something to this and that I needed to really kind of stick with it. Hmm. And the way that Dan teaches, which is really not necessarily in vogue, these days is more of a pointing out style of meditation. You know, it can be also seen as sort of a guided meditation, which many people probably have come across. But it really is to kind of have you note certain markers in your meditation and to kind of bring you along. And the way he runs his retreats are very experiential in the sense that after he puts you through a guided meditation, he'll have you sort of talk about where you're at with your experience. And then that way you can actually self-correct you. And this is an interesting thing because meditation is like any other skill. There's the guy who wrote that book that says it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. And Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, right. So that may or may not be true. I don't know. But I think for people that can actually learn and have a teacher that can guide you and instruct you and correct you, that maybe you don't necessarily need to go through 10,000 hours because what often happens mm. is you'll be, you'll get it to a place where you'll plateau and you'll get stuck. And the idea of a good teacher is to tell you where you're getting stuck to get you out of that as quickly as possible. Because in meditation, people can be stuck for years someplace. Yeah. Like that. In the way that Dan runs his retreats is he will actually point out to you that, well, okay, there, maybe try this, maybe try that. You know, there, there, there's something here that you're not seeing. And I think there is a value to that. And unfortunately, in this day and age, it's very hard to find teachers where you get that kind of intimacy, where they can actually know, you know, your particular issue in regards to your practice and actually help you guide you through that. So it's, it's an interesting thing. He doesn't run his retreats as silent retreats. And part of that, too, is because he feels like meditation shouldn't be demarcated in this way where you go someplace and you're kind of in this other world and environment where everything has to be silent that the idea of meditation is to take it into the world. So if you can kind of collapse those barriers early on, you won't create this sort of pattern where, well, I have my formal meditation practice here on my cushion when everything is quiet. And then when I'm in the world, all the reactivity is coming up and I'm still acting like a crazy person, you know, or, or, or just getting attached to particular things that are coming up in my mind. Point of clarification or, or a question on this. When you said he likes to collapse those boundaries early on, so you're not isolating your meditation practice to something you do in the cloisters of your bedroom or, and then just, you know, it's only about that time, that space, you get your little piece of peace. It sounds like he's saying, no, it needs to be relevant in how you show up in the world. Can you give me an example of that? Like, how would he, or how would you, it could be just your interpretation. What does he mean by that? Like how in this context, how do you see meditation as relevant in how you are in the world? You started 
to obviously speak about it a little bit in terms of reactivity, but can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the whole point of meditation is to acquire a particular liberation around the things that we have reactivity or we have assumptions around. It's apparent that we feel this grab towards our thoughts, our emotions, our sensation, the sense of the self that we have, you know, the particular story and narrative that we carry around about who we are. Yeah. And meditation helps sort of loosen that up where it kind of creates a little bit of space around all those particular uh, things that we hold to be true in our experience. So if you can kind of enter the world and not have so much attachment to all those particular things that are arising in your mind, you can have sort of a freedom to engage things in the moment and not necessarily do things based on some thought that's controlling you. You now have the freedom to kind of control what thoughts you want to uh, take a position on and more freely kind of um, engage in, in your world, which can allow you to, you know, hopefully be a better person, you know, in, in regards to general morality uh, yeah. in regards to how you can kind of act appropriately to the circumstances that come up. Um, and, and also just to have a basic freedom about knowing who you're, who you are, who your true nature really is, um, can really ground you as we enter into all kinds of turmoil in life and things come up all the time and, you know, you're always going to be bumping up against something. That that's awesome. So two, two follow-up questions then. Can you say what you mean by your true nature? And two, can you say a little bit, it sounds like you were really speaking from firsthand experience, but then can you just speak a little bit to then like when you started to do this practice, what changed for you in terms of how you started to show up in the world? Did you see some of these changes that you're talking about in who and how you were? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I'll say it was a very gradual process. It it wasn't overnight. And I think sure. I think this is true for for most people. But again, uh, I, I relate a hundred percent. Right. But but keep in mind, you know, like I said, there there is an aspect of meditation that requires a skill. And like any skill, some people are just going to be better at it than other people. So just keep that in mind that, you know, for some people, they come in into it and it kind of happens more easily for them and, and they, you know, kind of can go deeper with it. And getting back to your question about what I mean by true nature. So this is really sort of the ultimate liberation because true nature, sometimes when we talk about people, I mean, I, I'm really tentative to use the term enlightened because I, I think that's a tricky word. It's a loaded word. Definitely. But there is this assumption that we think people that are enlightened have something more, you know, that there there's a certain wisdom and the profundity and a certain higher reverence that we might hold for people who would fall into that. But the truth is really what it means when we talk about true nature, it's almost like there's a quality of negating things. So in a sense that where we kind of walk around where I said earlier, we, we have our thoughts, we have our emotions, we have our sense of our narrative of who we are. We have all the objects in the sensory and motor world that we sort of attach ourselves to. Someone that is aware of their true nature would still experience all these things, but there would be a sense of freedom around it. They would actually be 
a negativa of around these experiences where you could still have them, but there would be a sense of ultimate freedom around that. And it would create an opening to know that there's a deeper freedom of who you really are in that. You know, the mystics have talked about this in many different ways. This is obviously, it could be seen as the ground of being. It could be seen as one's divine nature. It could be seen as God. It could be seen as, there, there, there's many things that this has been coined as. But most of us will have this experience, but not necessarily be stable in it, right? We'll, we'll have this experience mm. from time to time. And we can have this experience at any moment, right? It's not something that you have to go through 20 years of meditation to have. Right. But the truth is, most people will, it, it will be fleeting. Things will begin to cloud over again. And that's natural. That's, that's part of the process. Yeah. Okay, great. So we were talking about your story and you were talking a little bit about Dan Brown. And then we got into a little bit more of the specifics of the teaching and what you were learning and then how, how you felt the actual, some of the transformation you started to experience through that. Bring us up to present day from from that point. If you could just take us through the rest of that story from that first retreat and then starting to practice, working with Dan on the pointing out context and then your own practice evolving. Just bring us up to present day. Sure. Again, it's not a linear process. I've been doing retreats with Dan now for nine years or so, probably done at least one retreat a year at least. I have a daily meditation practice that I do every day for at least 45 minutes. And nice. um, I would say these, these shifts are very subtle. It's not necessarily your friends are going to notice it, you know, or your mother's going to notice it right away, I think. <laughs> but you, you do sense something changes. You know, there's a, there's a shift in your locus of identity that just gradually will come about. And for me today, it just feels like things are more simple and easier, mm. that there is an easiness to who I am, that where I was probably much more anxiety prone, if I go back 10 years, it's not that that anxiety doesn't still exist. And it's not that I don't still have bad moments and bad days. Um, nice. But I don't tend to hold on to them as much. I'll even say when I was a younger person, I, I had moments where I was prone to depression. I just, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think I have a disposition towards melancholy from time to time. It's, right. it's just how I'm made up in a certain way. And I don't have those moments as much, you know, they still come about from time to time, but it definitely doesn't have the same intensity that it had. So it's interesting. I also see that there's a thing about this meditation that everything sort of starts to make sense as a whole, you know, where being someone who is very analytical, I tend to have a very linear mind. I find that my mind is changed in a certain sense where I don't see things as linear, but more holistically in, in the way my mind works. Mm. And I find that to be interesting, too. So like certain things will, there's a certain aspect to creativity that comes more easily because I can sort of take disparate ideas and find ways that they can come together in, in a particular pattern recognition around things that may not necessarily be similar. And that's been interesting, too, to kind of have that experience. So yeah. there, there are things that meditation definitely will do for you. Sometimes it's hard to articulate it. And, I, and I'll say this, I mean, maybe I'm being a little provocative here, but 
I'm not particularly fond of like there's a big movement these days around the quantified self, you know, and, and, and this is sort of people that want to measure everything. You know, they want to find metrics around every particular thing, even things that are going on in the body. You know, so meditation is a big part of that. They want to see how different things are showing up in your body and your mind as regards to how meditation will actually function and make you a better person. And all those things are true. They, they do happen. But I, I think the things that have been most inspiring around meditation are the things that I can't really measure. They're more qualitative. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something I just feel is really important to, to point out that sometimes we, we're always trying to get into this personal improvement project around trying to find the, the thing that we can sort of mark on some kind of measurement system where we got into. And, and I don't know if I can do that with some of the things that I've gotten out of meditation. And I think that's important to just keep that perspective in mind. I think it's awesome. I mean, particularly for a lot of the folks listening, they're like you and I probably living, working, playing in a Western context. And we tend to live in a very secular materialistic context and it's a reductionist context. And I feel like part of what you're talking about is the inherent reductionism that comes with the quantified self. And you start to try and measure everything, engage its value and worth only through that measurement paradigm. You start to lose something, especially something ineffable, something that's there's more to meditation than simply our physiological and neurological response to it. Yeah, those are wonderful. And like, I love the fact that science is getting on board. And I love the fact that the claims made by mystics, seers, and saints over the millennia are now being validated in some powerful ways by science. But remember, these claims have been made by these extraordinary people for thousands of years. They didn't need science. There's something, as you were saying, in the pure qualitative context that's incredibly important and we need to listen to that. And that's, that's what I'm getting from you. It's not, well, you have to dismiss the science, but don't forget there's something much bigger often that you can't measure going on here and we need to be open to that and part of meditation is the practice and process of it it allows us to be more open to that mystery yeah that's an excellent point morgan I, i'm really happy that you you kind of fleshed that out it makes me think of one other thing because i mean and not to disparage any of your audience that might be more secular meditators and and, and it's you know meditation has become quite mainstream now you have articles in Wired magazine, and you know about meditation. People in Silicon Valley are meditating pretty. Yeah, pretty, entrepreneur uh, and yeah. Inc. And I think that's great, and I think there is absolutely some value in that, and I have yeah. no problem with it. I think it's a really good thing, and it opens up a gateway for a lot of people out there. But there is this notion, like, okay, let's take the woo-woo out of meditation, and let's just get into sort of like the technique of meditation, and let's just, you know, focus because it does something good to the brain and and to the physio physiology of the body. But there's something else about meditation that I think can really enhance one's practice is the intention of the practice, mm. and to me, that can only come through having sort of a 
a higher relationship to oneself and the practice. And usually that will come through a religion or a tradition. I mean, because you talked about these mystics and sort of the the experiences that they had and, and what they wrote about. And if you read any of these people, it's just amazing. You know, they're, they're just such beauty and profundity in how they talk about their relationship to life. And, you know, not all of them were meditators necessarily either. They, you know, maybe just had more of a contemplative practice. But really what brought a lot of those people in there is because they had such a strong intention that they had a love for spirit. They had a love for God. Yeah, that, they love silence. Yes. Yeah. So to me, if you're just going to say, okay, well, I don't believe in all that woo-woo stuff and I'm going to go meditate because I want to reduce some stress in my life and I want to improve my blood pressure and that's fine. And you probably will do that and you'll get something out of that. But you may not necessarily go as far as you could go, though. You know, maybe there's something more to it than than what you think it is. And if you were allowed, if you allowed yourself to have some faith that there was something deeper behind all of this, it might open things up for you in a way that you didn't anticipate. That's awesome. I think that's spot on. I think it may be a good point for us to begin to transition into the second part of this interview and start talking about integral theory. So I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Ted. Tune in next week for part two of this interview. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Apparently, it will earn you several hours of good luck good karma, and, of course, my enduring gratitude. And it will help other meditators discover this show. Also, I want to let you know, this episode is sponsored by our free Meditation for Life guided meditation experience. Head on over to aboutmeditation.com and pick up two free guided meditations. That's aboutmeditation.com. And of course, if this is the first episode you're listening to, you can go to www.onemind.com to browse our entire audio archive of interviews and creative riffs on meditation. We've also got some great interviews coming up with two best-selling authors, Hal Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning, and then Dan Harris, the author of 10% Happier. So look out for those in coming episodes. I love to end with a quote. And today's quote is from the great teacher, J. Krishnamurti. And he said, In oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and learn, the door is there and the key is in your hand. Nobody on earth can give you either the key or the door to open, except yourself. <laughs>